Well, yes, uh, thank you all for showing up on this delightful night to hear a historian talking about somebody who's long dead. Um, but tonight, at any rate, is <clears throat> the case of um, Edward Said. Uh, now, as I was thinking more about this, um, um, it struck me that tonight's uh, talk uh, resonates really remarkably well with what we were hearing this morning um, from Peter uh, when he talked um, a good deal um, about what it means for um, uh, uh, the church to be um, in a sort of, um, uh, and indeed in the Old Testament, to be in an exile condition, a condition of exile. And so I just wanted for a minute before we launch into um, Said to have this um, this verse in our minds as we just travel um, through what I want to say about Saeed. Dear friends, <clears throat> I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And it's this phrase, um, foreigners and exiles, is exactly how Peter thinks of of the Christian church <clears throat> and um, that followers of Jesus Christ are necessarily to think of themselves as indeed they are foreigners and exiles to the extent that we're not that is the extent to which we have a problem so Edward Edward Said uh, let me just say something uh, briefly about him um, to explain my interest um, in Said um, and I think also just to set a little bit of his own biography um, in context um, here. Um, he's been a hugely um, influential um, literary scholar um, of Palestinian-American uh, kind of uh, um, hybrid uh, condition, if you like, and also has been an outspoken, was an outspoken uh, Palestinian activist. Now, he spent a good deal of his uh, career teaching um, as a professor of English and comparative literature at the University of Columbia. Um, he had, of course, been born in Jerusalem and was the son of wealthy Christian Palestinian parents. His father was a Christian Palestinian businessman and his mother was of Christian Lebanese and Palestinian uh, descent. Of course, um, after 1948... Edward Said and his family became refugees. Um, and so he lived, as it were, between worlds. And this is an image that he uses a, a great deal, living in, in two worlds, the world of Jerusalem and the world of Cairo. And then, of course, the Americas. And so this comes through, I think, in his um, autobiographical reflections, out of place, this notion of having uh, been domesticated in very different um, contexts and environments and living always between, between worlds, between the world of the Middle East and the world of the capitalist West. Um, so uh, right from the start you can see that this notion of living between worlds struck me as something that is also diagnostic of the Christian uh, condition, living, as it were, between worlds, uh, living, to be sure, in this world, but also with a citizenship in another world, a world yet to come, and what it's like and what it should be like to live in precisely that, that tension. 
Um, of course, uh, uh, Saeed was a, a voice for the Palestinian cause um, in the United States, and this made him, of course, very controversial. And it's said that he was therefore under surveillance from the FBI from about 1971. I want to travel through some of my engagements with, uh, with Saeed. I, I certainly don't claim to be an expert on him by, by any means, um, nor does what I uh, say tonight imply um, any, anything by way of a judgment about the politics of the Middle East. Um, I, I'm engaging with this thinker much the way I try to do with Michel Foucault in, in, in the way in which I think we were instructed by Merrill Westfall, whom I, whom I discussed, um, that we should engage with these uh, thinkers, whether um, unbelieving or not, uh, to the extent to see um, are they saying things that are relevant uh, to the church and uh, that we should be responsive to um, as we also try to live out our lives in this, at this point of, of late modernity. So, um, Edward Said and, and, and his world. Now, um, I think what I'll try to do is say a little bit about uh, the world in which uh, Said works, something about his, can I say, intellectual equipment, um, the sort of apparatus that he uses, and then look at a couple of his major contributions, and then try to see uh, the lingering influence right up to this very moment in time. Um, as we think about uh, things like the Middle East, or indeed as we think about Christian engagement in other parts of the world, not least through the missionary movement. I think there are interesting questions for us here. Now, now Saeed, as I said, makes much of his personal life living between places, particularly as an exile himself, an exiled Palestinian intellectual. And it's that notion of a kind of, what can I say, paradox of identity, um, an identity that is not a pure one at all, but an impure one, a hybrid one, uh, one that is a combination of uh, remarkably different kinds of impulses um, and forces, economic, uh, political, and of course uh, intellectual, uh, never mind spiritual. Now, um, of course, when he's thinking about his own identity and when he's thinking about his own sense of not belonging to any place, because he belongs to many places, I think that he wants us to think of that as uh, telling us something about identities that are complex. Identities that are not easily reduced to simply one location. They're multifarious. Because he sees these not only as a condition he himself is directly experiencing, but also sees it as a condition of um, what you might call all post-colonial or diasporic peoples. So he sees himself as somehow able to speak for those who have been dispossessed, um, those who have been uh, forced into settlement elsewhere and who become migrants um, on the face of, of, of the earth. And so at one point he had this rather interesting thing to say, identity, who we are, where we come from, what we are, is difficult to maintain in exile. We are the other an opposite, a flaw in the geometry of resettlement, an exodus. Look how many Christian or religious words are, are really in this. I mean, we began by saying the church is in exile, and he's telling us, look, people in exile find it difficult to maintain their identity. 
it struck me there's something to think about right off here. Um, but also, we are, if we're in exile, the other, over against which there is some power or force um, trying to exert its dominance um, over exiled peoples. And of course, note that hugely biblical word. I mean, he's, he's coming out of a Middle Eastern tradition. We are an exodus, a way out, exodus, where we've come from. So I think that these themes have dominated his life as a literary critic and also particularly as a political activist, struggling with identity, struggling with imperial powers, struggling with what he calls cultural oppression, and interested, therefore, in the conditions in which thinking and writing takes place if you're in the midst of those very circumstances. And therefore, one of the things that I think has fascinated um, Edward Said is precisely this. How have people in the West tended to write and construct other places on the face of the earth? How have we in the West thought about this place called the Middle East? And instructively, he goes back to one of the early 20th century statements about the Middle East that turned out to have enormous geopolitical significance that resonates with us right up to our our very own day, 2014. He goes back to the original declaration by Balfour, the foreign minister, the so-called Balfour Declaration, that of course led ultimately to to the creation of the modern state of Israel. And at the time, in 1917, this showed something of the British government's thinking about the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Now, as he pondered Balfour's declaration, this is what Said has to say. Balfour's statement in the declaration takes for granted the higher right of a colonial power to dispose of a territory as it saw fit. As Balfour himself averred, this was especially true when dealing with such a significant territory as Palestine and with such a momentous idea as the Zionist idea, which saw itself as doing no less than reclaiming a territory promised originally by God to the Jewish people. Now, of course, a Palestinian perspective, not surprising. But it raises kind of interesting questions about things like, what role did Christian theology have in the Balfour Declaration? I've heard it said that Balfour was from a family that took a very particular view of biblical prophecy and felt that, indeed, he was helping to fulfill biblical prophecy in creating this um, state for, um, for Israel, uh, one whose consequences we have lived with since the establishment of, of the nation of Israel in, in Palestine in, in 1948. So that's the world that Edward Said inhabits. And, and I want us to, less, I suppose, for a while, think about the politics, um, the geopolitics of the situation in the Middle East. I'm interested tonight in what we can learn from his methods of thinking about issues of such a, um, an enormous uh, sort What are the critical tools? What are the um, ideas and and, and apparatus that he brings to his um, interrogation of uh, this legacy 
that we've lived with um, in the West for a long time. So, um, Saeed's critical tools, and I want to pull out just um, one or two of these, because, because they apply right across the board to the reading that you and I do every single day um, of our lives. Now, the first concept that I think is important is, is, is what I'm going to call worldliness. And what I mean by that is this, something along these lines, that, that Saeed really believes that every single piece of writing, every single text, is fundamentally something that is located in this world. Now, that seems a very trivial thing to say, but I'm going to explain the significance of it. It comes from this book that he wrote entitled, um, a, series, a series of essays, The World, the Text, and the Critic. Now, what he's interested in, in is this. When you read a text, try to reconstruct the world that produced that text. Try to look at that text from the perspective of not just what it says, but what it assumes. Um, have a look at it from the perspective of where it is or was located at the moment of its birth, and then how you read it where you are located at the moment of encounter. Now you can see right off that this sets Saeed apart from the huge tradition that we've had of modern literary criticism, where, as it were, the words of a text almost uh, take a, a life of their own that is divorced from um, the realities of economics and politics and social life and, and the like. Um, he wants to, to locate these texts very firmly in the material conditions of their making. He wants to locate them right in the midst of the politics of producing a text. Exactly what I think it would be interesting for us to do with every single book of the Bible. Locate it in the context of its making and the moment of textual encounter. Now this is his approach. He's not going to approach texts just looking at these transcendental abstract ideas he wants to see what function they are working. What are they doing? What are they doing materially in the situation out of which they, they emanate? Now, one of his key notions, then, is this. Um, how, do, how do people come to get represented in texts? How do, how, how do people talk about groups of people? Um, how do they characterize them? Um, how do they typify them? Well, what assumptions do they make about them? Uh, what kind of discourse do they produce about them? And so as he's looking at uh, novels of one sort and another, um, conceptual um, uh, documents um, and so on, um, he's forever looking at the way in which people get represented. And he's always asking these questions. Does this particular representation hide some aspect of reality? Or does it mask some aspect of reality? Does it distort? Does it caricature? Does it stereotype? And he's particularly interested in what he calls master discourses. And he means by those the ones that have become dominant in our way of thinking because these actually construct images that we have in our minds of particularly peoples from other locations across the face of the earth. 
Now, he, he wants to argue that these are not simply um, entertaining stories, that they're not simply um, color or uh, peripheral um, observations, that they're so potent that they can construct people's identities such that even those who are misrepresented can come to believe the representations about themselves. I mean, I mean uh, let me give you two examples of the sort of thing he has in mind. And I'll start from the, from the easy one. What about how the Irish have been represented? Well, well I mean, he's gone through you know, a lot of um, 19th century novels and, and, and newspapers and texts and so on. And of course, uh, in much English writing, the Irish were portrayed as backward, sometimes as ape-like, and often as drunken, a whole set of stereotypes. But what he says is, of course, those representations never came from the Irish themselves. They came from what he calls the imperial center. And what's interesting, of course, is that a master discourse of that sort can begin to be believed by the subject peoples. So they come to see them that way. And he says, as the second example, one of the sorriest cases of this would be examples of, and there are many, slaves who ended up lauding the virtues of slavery. They so believed the master discourse about their own inferiority and about their own incapacity to govern themselves and their need for some kind of paternalistic governance, their need for someone to take charge of them, that they began to defend the very system that was so dehumanizing and from a 21st century perspective so bizarre. But this is what he's after, the power of these master discourses uh, to form identities, not just the way in which the imperial center views the others, but the way the others come to think of themselves. Now, if, if, if Said is even in the right neighborhood in this analysis, textual criticism turns out to be an enormously potent political force an enormously potent cultural and indeed psychological force for whole, whole peoples. And so he introduces another concept, another part of his um, conceptual apparatus, what he calls affiliation and affiliation. What he means by this is, when you read any text, put it in its filial line of descent. What other texts is it descended from? What relationship does this text bear to a whole tradition of thinking about one subject or another? I mean, a good example of this is that a huge amount of the way in which other nations and people groups were typified in the 18th century, for example, came out of the tradition of the voyages of exploration. These travelers brought back sometimes fictional stories, and they found their way into these documents because that was the filial line of descent in which these documents were, were located. But Said's interested in more than this. And we'll get to one or two examples of what he has in mind just, just in a minute. They're also affiliated, not just historically with other documents, but they are affiliated with affairs going on round about them. So that when you read an 18th century novel, Never think of that novel as separate from an imperial world. 
That was based maybe on the sugar industry that sustained the very great houses that Jane Austen would write about. Try to connect it to the unspoken affiliations that weave their way in and out through many of these texts and without which the production of those texts would have been utterly impossible. So that's what he wants us to do. Always ask, interesting question, where is this text taking place? So let me move now to um, his work on, work on criticism. And I just have very briefly three little points about this before I move on to uh, a couple of his, his, major, his major contributions. He instructs us, first of all, to learn how to read against read against the grain. I think as Christians, we can learn something from Said here. The task of the critic, Said says, is to uncover the assumptions and the categories of writers who are unwittingly reproducing power relationships in their texts. Now, in his case, of course, he's forever wanting to uncover the imperial assumptions, the cultural assumptions, by reading for often the absences um, in a text. He wants to read against the grain. Read it from the side of the victims. What would it read like if you were a victim? Read it from the side of those who lost out, the losers. What would this text look look like? Read a text as if you're a servant. How does a servant feel reading some of those great classical works? What would it look like if you were a plantation slave or the victim of apartheid or a foreign laborer? Could we look at texts from the side of those that have lost out in the history of the colonial process? And wouldn't that teach us something about the way those texts have been constructed? This is, of course, the second point, a political type type of criticism. By emphasizing these points, he's forever saying that the critic's task is to engage in the politics of change. To try to bring about a world that is less the victim of oppression and suffering. The aim of criticism specifically says, a phrase well known to many of us in Fitzroy, it is to speak truth to power. We should be writing back, he thinks, against colonial dominance to get to the voice of those who have been the victims of injustice, the the losers in, in the world. And he thinks that the best way to do this is through what I'm calling exilic criticism the perspective of the exile. He writes always in praise of those who are exilic, who are dislocated, who are dispossessed. Why? Because they can see things both ways. The exile in this world can see this from the perspective of the new nation in which they find themselves, but also from the perspective of the world from which they have come. It's the view both ways. It's an attempt to get what you might call double vision. Exactly, it strikes me, what the church has to have. A vision from this world 
informed by a vision from the world now inaugurated, but the one that fundamentally yet has to come. Now, it's quite interesting to look at the inspiration for this notion of exilic criticism in Said's own writings. And in fact, it comes directly from the Christian tradition. He had encountered, um, from the 12th century, uh, one of the Victorine monks, Hugh of St. Victor. And this Hugh of St. Victor, writing as a monk and writing from within the Christian tradition, has this to say. The man who finds his homeland sweet is still a tender beginner. He to whom every soil is as his native one is already strong. But he is perfect to whom the entire world is a foreign land. We are exiles and foreigners. Remember that verse. The tender soul has fixed his love on one spot in the world. The strong man has extended his love to all places. The perfect man has extinguished his. He feels a foreigner in this world. He's writing about spiritual maturity. And this becomes a kind of inspiration point for the sort of criticism that Edward Said wanted to promulgate. On the exile's capacity... To have multiple vision, he has this to say. Because the exile sees things, both in terms of what has been left behind and what is actual here and now, there is a double perspective that never sees things in isolation. Seems to me a profoundly Christian vision of things. We should never see things in isolation. We should see them as exiles in this world, a place where we should be foreigners. And so this personal ambivalence that the exile, the literal exile, has to live is the very thing that is enabling for the exile. The exile is in a position, therefore, to speak truth to power. Now, on this delightful uh, Sunday evening at uh, 15 degrees centigrade, 60 degrees Fahrenheit, I'm sure like me, you've had enough theory. I certainly have. Let's see what it's going to look like from the perspective of looking at some of the real examples um, that he he picks out. And I want to turn to his most famous book, Orientalism. Now, this book has been through many, many editions, um, reprinted many times, one of the most read books, I think, on most curricula and humanities across uh, campuses, uh, university colleges and campuses across, across the world. It's his most celebrated work. Published in 1978, it's basically about how Europeans came to know the Orient. And so, the, and so that's what I think he's after. How is it that the West came to know the East? And how is it that the West came to exercise power over the East? Important here, some of the connections, I think, with Michel Foucault. I think the first interesting question is to ask, tell me, what is the Orient? I'll put it to you another way, different way. Where is the West? Now, 
Whenever I say the West, uh, how do you define what the West is? Um, is it everything as to the west of the zero degree uh, line of longitude, in which case East London is in the east and uh, we over here are, are, are in the west? Um, it would probably rule out um, Australia, wouldn't it? Um, so you easily see that from the word go, the word west, the west, isn't really a place at all. It's a mental construct. I guess you would want to include Japan in the west, as I say, Australia, New Zealand. What the West is, is not a location at all. The West is a set of values. It's a set of cultural forms. It's a concept that implies superior development. It's a place of the imagination. Now, if we have that difficulty of thinking about what the West is, What do we mean when we talk about the East? What do we mean when we talk about the Orient? And Sayyid is out to find out how did we construct the Orient from the perspective of of the West. And I'm going to go through some of the moments in in this construction. But his argument is that we have produced it as a projection of our Western imagination. And one of the ways that, of course, we've done it is through artwork. Um, I, mean, I mean, I guess you would not think that this was East Belfast when I show you this, right? I mean, there's something immediately that, that, that springs to mind that it is something called the Orient. Maybe not too sure exactly where, but the Orient nonetheless. And what Side says is, that, is, is this, that a whole range of images and perceptions of this sort have constructed what we think of as the Orient. All of you would instantly know that this is the East. Now, it's interesting that we in the West have done this to a a number of places. We've done it for the Orient. Uh, We've done it for um, Darkest Africa. Um, We've done it for Shangri-La. We've done it for... I mean, if I say the word Tahiti, I mean, what what do you think of? Where the dickens did we get that image from? If I were to say to you, the Orient, now answer me, is it exotic or mundane? What do you think? Of course it is. Is it mysterious or common? Is it primitive or modern? Hmm. Is it risky or safe? Ah, it depends who you ask. You see how we have constructed these places, and we've constructed it in a language of power, Said says, such that the dominant power is exercised from the West towards the East. We've done this intellectually and we've done it politically. And he wants to argue that these have actually been dominating ways that have led to the contemporary world of geopolitics, global geopolitics within which we live. How has the Orient come to be? Well, I mean, he thinks very much that, of course, there's an early prehistory to this. And, of course, the early prehistory goes right back to 1095. Between 1095 and 1291, the Crusades took place. And, and of course, the point of this, entirely from start to finish, was to try to overcome the infidel, 
to try to bring Christian values and Christian virtues and Christian civilization to to this part of of the world. A a few years ago, um, the then Pope found himself in considerable difficulty, remember, when he said something about the Crusades, because suddenly he realized that this was a contemporary political issue as we think about the relationship between the West and Islam. But of course it got an enormous boost during the period of, of the 18th century, particularly with a man called William Jones, who set out to write about the science of language. He began to look at Indian languages, began to look at Sanskrit, and began to argue that these languages were the source of all European languages. It led to the creation of what came to be known as the Indo-European. But throughout this was this assumption that the West and the Aryan um, civilization was the, the most superior civilization across the face of the earth. And so as, as one scholar working on language in the 19th century had this to say, every person, however slightly he may be acquainted with the affairs of, our ti- of, of time, sees clearly the actual inferiority of Mohammedan countries. All those who have been in the East or in Africa are struck by the way in which the mind of the true believer is fatally limited, rendering it absolutely closed to knowledge. Throughout, you get these binaries, superior, inferior. The West is ordered, the Orient was disorderly. The West was rational, the the, the East was irrational. One had civilization, the other was primitive. And what Said wants to say is that we see here the machinery of cultural domination. This, I think, was most particularly evident with what was known as the Napoleonic invasion or the Napoleonic survey of, of Egypt. In 1798, the year, interestingly, of the Irish Rebellion, Napoleon Bonaparte um, uh, invaded invaded, um, Egypt. And he took with him a whole range of cartographers, mapmakers, engineers, poets, linguists, and so on to produce the first entire description of of the land of, of Egypt. And they mapped absolutely everything. These maps became representations of the Orient to the West and became a means whereby we in the West were able to govern these unruly peoples. Invasions always stimulate a stunning interest in maps. But of course this was not just a physical invasion, it was a cultural invasion as well. Here is an image of Napoleon Bonaparte entering the great the great um, um, uh, mosque in, in Cairo. And you can see perfectly well which is, is characterized as superior and which is inferior, which is dominant and which is, which you might say, subaltern. Which are those who are cowering in the corner over against the great, uh, the, the great invader? It's pretty clear to see. This was a cultural piece of domination, every bit as much as a, a political one. And so it led to a discourse 
about the Orient that snakes its way right up through British foreign policy with respect to the sense that we could control and dominate the rest of the world on account of our superior uh, practices and our superior civilization. Implicated in political power because when you can construct the image of a people as subservient and subject to domination by someone else, you have with you an enormous piece of cultural power. We did this, he argues, by homogenizing, pushing together peoples who were very different linguistically, very different in terms of, of, of religion, massively different cultures, but we clumped them all together as the Orient and thereby exercised power. Now, I've been going for quite a while. I just want to say a little word about another important book of, of Said's called Cultural Imperialism. And I just want to really mention a couple of things uh, about this, um, and, and, and then we'll, we'll move to um, um, what, what I'm going to call the afterlife of this whole, this whole business. Now, in this book, Cultural Imperialism, he turns to a lot of uh, famous uh, novels, now, um, you need to ask my wife about some of these because she's actually read these novels, uh, whereas I only read about them. I've got what's called the cocktail party snobs knowledge. I never read the books, but I know the reviews. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, he makes this very, very interesting comment, and I'd be interested from those of you who do um, literature, do you tell me if you think this is right. He says, there is no European novel as we know it that does exist without empire. There is no European novel as we know it that exists without empire. He takes as his example Mansfield Park by Jane Austen. Now, Sir Thomas Bertram's absence from Mansfield Park, of course, is for a reason. And, of course, you get the flurry of all the young ladies looking for him to return and the world's falling apart without Sir Thomas there. But where is he? We don't learn about it extensively, but he's not there because he's off tending to his Antiguan plantations. Mansfield Park, according to Said, only exists by virtue of the wealth that was generated on the other side of the world in Antigua. Wealth that was generated by the slave trade, a world that was generated by the colonial planter class. And this is what he means by, by reading beneath the surface. This is the kind of unquestioned backdrop that makes the very possibility of the novel happen. It is the presupposition without which the novel itself, he believes, could not exist. Now, in that case, I suppose the underlying colonialism is, shall we say, implicit. But of course, it's not implicit at all everywhere. In many, many places, it's absolutely explicit not least in the writings of someone like Rudyard Kipling. He turns to Kipling's Kim, and in his case, it's not that there isn't a loving and richly detailed panorama of Indian life displayed there. Of course there is. It's evocative. It's, it's stunning. It's rich. But it also tells you something about the idea of Britain's cultural mission across the face of the earth. Kipling, you'll know it well. Take up the white man's burden. Send forth the best ye breed 
Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives' needs. To wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild, your new-caught sullen peoples, half devil and half child. This was the image through a good deal of the early part of the 20th century that we in the West imposed on this place called called India. And so he calls for contrapuntal reading. Now there's a little bit of biography about Saeed that I didn't mention at the beginning for this reason. Edward Saeed, as well as being perhaps one of the world's leading literary critics and outspoken uh, uh, spokespersons for the Palestinian cause, was also an outstanding musician. And when he uses the word contrapuntal here, I mean, he's thinking of a musical analogy. He studied music at the Juilliard School of Music in in New York and attained virtually concert pianist uh, level of uh, pianistic performance. He would regularly give concerts in in New York and, of course, later joined with Daniel Barenboim, the the celebrated uh, Jewish um, uh, pianist, to form that East-West Orchestra in an attempt to make some contribution to the to the the resolution of the problems of the Middle East. And what he's after here with contrapuntal reading is this. In counterpoint, of course, you've got two melodies. Uh, You've got a lower melody and a higher one, and they interact in creative and dynamic ways. In in classical counterpoint, of course, they were were harmonious. Uh, But progressively, of course, through the 20th century, uh, there came to be dissonant counterpoints, where there are points of harmony but points of clash as well. And what I think Saeed wants to do is is say, when you're reading a text, don't only listen to the surface melody. Try to find the counterpoint melody that's going on. Read it in such a way that the voiceless are given a voice. Read it in such a way that those on the colonial periphery can read back against you in the text from the perspective of those who have been, been subjugated. Read with the eyes of the periphery not just the eyes of the metropolitan core. And what he says is, this opens up new possibilities for reading any text. What if we tried to read the story of the Good Samaritan through the eyes of the homeless? Would that tell us something? Uh, What if we tried to read Paul's letters from the perspective of a Corinthian pagan? Would that be instructive? Would it be instructive to get a slave, a former slave, to read a good deal of Southern Presbyterian theology from the American South in the latter part of the 19th century? Would that expose assumptions, presuppositions, and unchallenged beliefs that were the taken-for-granted norm among Southern Presbyterians right through the Civil War period? Listening to counterpoint voices will help us see our own foibles and the assumptions that we might continually be making. Now, as I was doing some some other work in this, I was astonished to discover the degree to which some of the most eminent thinkers in the Western world were inflicted and afflicted with many of the kinds of assumptions that uh, Saeed is trying to expose. But, but what I was amazed at is that you don't need to do much contrapuntal reading to, to see them. And I'm going to illustrate this. Let me give you three of, I suppose, the West's most famous, famous philosophers. I'm calling this racial politics in European high culture. 
Let's take the great thinker David Hume, the Scots philosopher. I quote him. There's some reason to think that all the nations which live beyond the polar circles or between the tropics, you don't need to do much contrapuntal reading here, are inferior to the rest of the species and are incapable of all the higher attainments of the human mind. I guess you can still take a Hume in the philosophy, de- in the philosophy department of Queen's. I wonder did they read this text. Uh, uh, take the great European thinker um, Montesquieu. In, in his famous work, the, the Spirit of the Laws, inhabitants of warm countries are like old men, timorous. It's pretty warm tonight here, isn't it? <laughs> the people in cold countries are like young men, brave. And then the great Kant. I mean, there are whole curricula based around the writings of Immanuel Kant. The inhabitant of the temperate parts of the world, above all the central part, um, he was from Prussia and therefore from the central part, has a, wait for it and look around you with expectation, has a more beautiful body, works harder, (laughs) is more jocular, more controlled in her or his passions, more intelligent than any other race of people in the world. Now notice the shift here to politics and then to war. That is why at all times, points in time, these people have educated the others and controlled them with weapons. There's a remarkable concept, uh, declaration by one of the West's great thinkers. You don't have to do much counterpoint reading to see what he's after here. Well, I, I mean, uh, I'm almost through. I did want to say a little bit about, about um, Palestine. You can see in his death here um, how much he was celebrated. Uh, his life had been celebrated uh, by uh, advocates of the Palestinian uh, cause. And, and really just to say that one of the things I think he was after was our persistent inclination in the West. And remember, he was writing way before 9-11. But the, the, the capacity that we have to always stereotype Islam in certain kinds of militant ways, such that when you say... Islam, we are inclined to think, yep, that's a very good image of what Islam is. And he wants to say it's more complicated, it's more contradictory, it's, 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 it's less pure, it's much more hybrid than what we would think from this kind of perspective. But I want to conclude now just with, how are we living with this in our own day? Well, we've heard a great deal about, I think, of late is something called the clash of civilizations. We live in a world now of a clash, so-called, between East and West. If you weren't asleep out there, when I was going through some of the images of Napoleon, um, you can see that I wasn't just describing Napoleon, was I? If you were awake and saw the other little flashes, they were meant to be memories of the present located in the past because we're living exactly with the heritage of that. So you should have been doing some homework as I've been talking here, thinking about the contemporary world while I was talking about the 18th century. East and West, or maybe somewhat more humorously, West and East. What's our image of Islam? Call to prayer. And then we see this. These are questions that are profoundly important for a Christian church. Kill them all. Let God sort them out.
or the front of Time magazine, what are we going to think about, about this? Should Christians convert Muslims? Is this an act of cultural imperialism? Is this an act, an act of the colonization of the mind? Is this geopolitics by another means? Is this a veil for, that needs, shall I use Foucault's word, unmasking to expose power relations behind our missionary endeavors? I hope not, but we should be aware of the question. And then I was terrified to see, to see this from uh, the Islamic Center in Detroit. I, I'm not sure what the document is, but some Christians had written on it. Islam is evil. Christ is king. This is a clash of so-called civilizations. And that's at this particular cultural moment in time. Uh, writing back in um, 2001, Edward Said had this to say, I think there's some lesson here for us. The personification of enormous entities called the West and Islam is recklessly affirmed as if hugely complicated matters like identity and culture existed in a cartoon-like world where Popeye and Bluto bash each other mercilessly with one always more virtuous pugilist getting the upper hand. This viewpoint does not have much time to spare for the internal dynamics and plurality of, of every civilization. I think I've, yes, of every civilization. But you know, I think that we continue to live with what I'm going to call colonial nostalgia. This hasn't been a history lesson. This is, if you like, a history of the present. We are persistently bombarded with stereotypical colonial images that constitute nostalgia, I think, for nearly every one of us here, at least if you're like me. Merchant Ivory movies. I don't know if you saw this one, The White Continent. I confess I am addicted to these. Nostalgia for a world I never knew. How much am I formed by the material culture of which I'm a part? Now, I haven't been on this holiday because Francis wouldn't actually go with me on one. <laughs> no, no, we haven't been on one of these. Huge, huge business in, in, in oriental vacation. Trading on exactly the same stereotypes that I've been talking about. This is from a contemporary brochure. I took a look at this one. These are the pictures from it. And there's a little diary where someone says from this luxury train, now and again we spot a gold-roofed Thai spirit house loaded with flowers and incense as offerings to the gods as the, as the luxury train takes its way through, in this particular case, Thailand. I was, I was quite offended by these. These are, my these, these are not the pictures from the brochure, but I watched the green countryside change to the reality of life, this is the diary, in the huge urban sprawl that is Bangkok. Moving more slowly, our luxury train passes an uninterrupted collection of squatter shacks. Only feet from the track, the laundry is pinned to lines strung between the shacks in neatly coloured coordinated rows. Both that ancient image of the exotic Orient and now these images of, of the horrors of this becomes nothing more than a vision to be seen from a luxury train, still packaging the Orient, 
for Western consumption. So I invite you to ponder these verses. Exilic criticism, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be reading with double eyes. We should be looking at the world from the perspective of a God who will comb out the snarls of history and will write the injustices of this world. We should be bringing that perspective of that world, I think, into this one as we live it. Why? Because here we do not have an enduring city. Honestly, that old Negro spiritual is right. This world is not our home. I mean, there's a sense that it is, but there is a real sense that we are looking for the city that is to come. And then, of course, that verse that I, that I began with, dear friends, you're foreigners and exiles. Therefore, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. As I pondered over Edward Said, my concern has been less to see where he's wrong. I mean, there are criticisms. Of course there are criticisms. He constructs the West as much as he thinks we construct the East. I mean, it's, it's not hard to, to, to try to score points against Edward Said, of course. But as a church member, he, he, he forces on me questions that I find it very difficult to escape from, uh, and which I think the church has to address straight on. And, and here's the first one. Are there ways in which we continue to be implicated in reproducing imperialism? Are there ways that we continue to do these very things that um, reproduce, reinforce a Western attitude of superiority and imperial control? Can we as a church really learn anything from Saeed's project of speaking truth to power? Until recently, the church often was the power. The church often was so much in the in the pockets of the state, that there was scarcely a difference between them. Maybe we're in a blessed position now if we have the courage to resist the temptations of the lure of power and speak truth to it. And if indeed Sayyid's account of the colonialism of the mind is right, is there any room left for Christian mission? My answer is yes, there is. Yes, there is. Jesus came to colonize our minds. But is that the kind of imperialism that missionaries have often engaged in? I just wonder.